Uh, and part of the uh, part of the reason that white folks in America uh, have so little understanding of faith is that uh, we haven't been able to trust our God if we weren't in control. Which is why we have to, uh, in the American story, we have to look to the uh, uh, brush arbors and the margins of the plantation to reconstruct and relearn the gospel. Because that's where people who were not in control heard the story of Jesus, heard the story about how that God had brought you know Israel out of Egypt before they raised that Jesus from the dead. And uh, if God can do that, then my Lord, maybe he'll even, you know, if God delivered Daniel, maybe he'll even deliver me. Maybe when we hear, you know, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, maybe when we hear, hear swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry home, maybe we can have, even have the faith to, uh, to run off into the woods and, uh, you know, grab Harriet Tubman by the hand. They called her Moses and never looked back, uh, uh, just, just believing that this story was going to get us to freedom. So that is the experience of faith that I'm trying to lean into, you know. about this one <laughs> what's up everybody what's we're, up we're the deconstructions <laughs> podcast here we are deconstructing on a podcast yet again oh yeah what's up john what's up adam how's it going man summertime summertime it's been a lot of time at the pool it has been a great summer yeah. i just took my whole family to taylor swift yeah you did this wonderful wonderful person from our new church named leslie you know who you are you're an angel <laughs> Gave us, gave us, like a gift, like manna from heaven, gave us four Taylor Swift tickets. Did she even have any idea, like, what a T-Swift fan you are? Uh, she did, actually. Okay. I don't, I don't hide that. <laughs> I was like... I don't hide, you know I don't hide it. I was like, does she have any clue what a, what a just a gift that was to you? Seriously. Seriously. Like, wow. I know. I remember you, you texted uh, Clay and I, and uh, I was like... Adam must be doing like cartwheels. It was it bad was back and all. It cartwheels. Was, it was a great experience. <laughs> Suffice to say, yeah. um, angels are real. God is real. <laughs> That's right. And uh, <laughs> Leslie, you are amazing. That's right. And uh, oh my gosh, dude, what a fun summer it's been. This episode, I could not be more excited about. Um, we, you know, back in the day, we had Drew Hart on. Uh, we definitely like to talk about. Um, issues of uh, race and inequality and justice and kind of things that are going on uh, politically because you can't really talk about uh, religion and ultimate things and people mattering and things like that and not talk about issues. And there's a book that uh, if you listen to our Richard Rohr 101 episode, um, Father Rohr, good pop bear, um, talked about a book that he had just received and he was freaking out about it. He loved it. Um, it's called Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion by an up-and-coming author and activist uh, named Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove. And we just got right on that, didn't we? So good. Got right on that. Because we have the book too. Yeah. And we kind of started paging through it and we were like, oh my gosh, this, ha- this conversation has to happen. Yeah, what, what a nice guy with an interesting, interesting perspective. Um, he's, he he uh, graduated from Duke Divinity School 
Um, he's, he's associated with that new monasticism uh, movement, which we talk about a little bit on the podcast. Kind of like the Shane Claiborne. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's, he's doing some cool things. And you know, as you'll hear him describe, like he's not just a guy who talks about it and writes about it. He's actually boots on the ground. And oh, yeah, the Poor People's Campaign. Unbelievable. And, and, and what he's talking about with like moral fusion politics. And oh, my gosh. Like he's a doer. Man. <laughs> and there is some meat. Yeah. In this conversation, you are not going to be bored, friends. No. And this is hopefully, my hope would be that this inspires lots of reflection um, within you as a person, as it did with me, and I think for you, John. Oh, yeah. Lots of just reflection on like how our, our, you know, our faith or our, um, our you know, attempt to, to practice faith really relates to the real actual world and like seeing that uh, as accurately as we possibly can and then understanding how what we have believed and how we have believed about our own faith um, may need some, may need some reconstructing. Yeah. May need some, some work. Yeah. And I think, I think this is a good one. If, if you enjoy this podcast and, and I think, I think we bring up some important timely topics, um, especially when it comes to race relations um, in, in the United States. So the, those of you who are listening from the U S um, this is, I mean, obviously an important topic that we have to talk about right now. There's some definite issues and have some, to. some brokenness, some broken things going on in our country. But if you enjoy this episode, I definitely encourage you to get it back and listen to our Drew Hart episode as well. I think the two complement each other uh, pretty nicely. So, yeah. I mean, it's like so many people on this podcast or, you know, that are listening have found themselves kind of wondering what the heck is going on with the version of religion that they were given. And at the same time, they're probably. F- feeling a lot of them are feeling very pulled towards issues of practical justice and, you know, what's going on on the news, uh, on their streets, in their towns. And what this guy does is kind of bring together like, hey, you know how you've had that feeling like something might be wrong with the gospel that you've been given? Well, that actually directly affects and is a part of what is going on on your streets. And yes, it is possible that the gospel was hijacked for agendas, and that might be why you started to feel uncomfortable with it. And maybe, I don't know, just maybe, <laughs> that is actually possibly the spirit making a lot of us uncomfortable with what we have so that we search for uh, new and, and more equal um, and more righteous, for lack of a better word, ground. Yeah. How about that? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy is just awesome. He, he's walking the walk, talking the talk, and um, what a blast. What a great book. Yeah. And um, thanks for everybody that's jumping on Patreon. Oh, Had yeah. another recent surge of a, a whole bunch of people that just wanting to be a part of what we're doing. And uh, we are trying to make good on uh, answering emails and getting stuff out. And John works his rear end off for you guys. You don't even know. I'm, I'm still catching up on some orders, but... You're doing great, bud. So if, if there is something that you haven't gotten and you've been waiting for a minute, please email us. Um, likewise, if, uh, um, if you have any questions that you guys want us to answer on our future YouTube channel... Uh, we're going to try to be uh, po- try to post some videos on there as we can. So if you guys have some questions that you, um, you'd like us to, to kind of uh, discuss or whatever, um, some mailbag type questions, we, we'd love to put those out there. Um, we will be scheduling the Skype calls very, very soon. So look out for that. There's a, uh, there's a scheduler program that we've got going. And uh, so we'll be sending out um, via our social media some alerts on that. So yep. if you guys signed up for that, through our Patreon. Um, if you like the book club thing that we're doing, you can sign up for that. If you haven't already, we will send you a book every month. 
Um, so we've got some good ones uh, selected for the next two months. So good. So, but other than that, um, check our show notes for the bands. Yep. And thanks for supporting us. Um, we can't thank you guys enough. No, we love you guys. It's so fun um, that you want to just keep having these conversations. And you are going to have plenty to talk about after this episode, let me tell you. So without further ado, we give you Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson, Wilson Hartgrove. Hartgrove. Couldn't get the freaking in there. Sorry, buddy. Well, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, do you just go by Jonathan or John? Jonathan's good. Jonathan is good. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for making some time in this, uh, this hot summer night for us to get indoors and uh, come together and have a great conversation about things that really matter. We really appreciate you being with us here tonight. I'm glad for the chance to talk. Well, for, for those that aren't familiar with your, with your work, um, figure the best way to start off is uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of the work that, that you're involved in currently. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a son of the son of the church and a son of the South. I was raised here in North Carolina in the Baptist church uh, by people who love Jesus and uh, wanted me to love Jesus, made me memorize the Bible in the King James Version. If it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us. You know, we were going to stick with it. <laughs> right, right. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for uh, the way that story, you know, got down inside of me, and for the, uh, and for the, the way it, yeah, has always been real for um, everyone I knew in the world I grew up in. But I, um, uh, you know, grew up in the heyday of the moral majority movement, and um, and our people really got uh, caught up in right-wing politics. And uh, I don't think we knew exactly what was happening to us. Uh, I certainly didn't know all the money and machinations that were uh, going into uh, targeting us as a group of people uh, to serve a political agenda. But, but I was an ambitious kid and wanted to you know, be part of what made sense in that world. So I uh, started trying to become president of the United States for Jesus when I was a teenager. <laughs> and I thought the first step, you know, in that direction would uh, be to get involved in politics. So I paged for Strom Thurmond of South Carolina when I was in high school still. Um, Strom Thurmond was once the Dixiecrat candidate for president. And I think more than anyone else is responsible for bringing the, uh, the old Southern Democrats who were hardcore segregationists into the Republican Party in the late 1960s. Um, but at any rate, uh, that was just the, the world that I knew and the world I'd grown up in. And, um, and getting into D.C. and kind of seeing that from the inside was sort of a, an awakening for me. And I um, came to, but I think a lot, a lot of young people have a kind of, you know, crisis of faith where they have to grapple with, you know, what they really believe and who they want to be. And for me, it was a it was a crisis of realizing the the deep contradiction between the things that I loved the most about Jesus and the story of the church and um, and the the harsh reality of what so-called Christian politics uh, looked like there in the late 90s in Washington, D.C. 
And I was disillusioned by all of that and um, didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But about that time, I met a preacher from North Carolina named William Barber, uh, who didn't look like me. He was he was a black man who had grown up in the eastern part of the state. And uh, I heard him preaching the gospel in, kind of in a different key. And it, it sounded right to my ear, and uh, I was just drawn to it. And um, even though politically uh, I was about as far from his world as somebody could be in this American story, um, we, he, I reached out and he embraced me as a, as a brother in Christ and um, kind of invited me into uh, what I now understand as— um, moral fusion politics. So we can talk more about what that means. But in summary, uh, I'm a Jesus-loving Southern boy who's trying to uh, live my life uh, uh, in service to moral fusion politics for the sake of uh, um, uh, trying to pursue the common good in the midst of uh, pretty chaotic times in this country. Mm. I think that's how I would summarize it. Man, that is so good. Um, thank you for giving us um, about a million more questions to ask you now. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, fa- that's fantastic. Before we just kind of dive into a whole bunch of questions, though, a couple things just based on where you're talking. Now, I know you're, you're not only a writer and you're not only just involved in politics. You're doing some, you're doing some pretty specific things. Uh, right before we flipped the mics on here, you were talking to us a little bit about what you're doing currently with this, uh, the Poor People's Campaign and this 40 Days of Action and going around and, and touring a little bit. Could you give us a little bit of a taste and a flavor for the kind of work you do there? I think that'll help kind of really set things up yeah. and color things well. Well, 50 years ago, um, you know, after the civil rights movement had uh, captured the moral imagination of the country, and I think in many ways, you know, uh, we had a kind of come to Jesus moment um, in the mid 20th century where uh, people who, people who claimed, you know, to uh, both be Christian and uh, participate in a democracy uh, realized that there's something deeply wrong about excluding some people from that uh, common life that we share because of the color of their skin. Mm. And, um, and, uh, you know, most people celebrate that now. Most people celebrate the civil rights movement and its uh, achievements, the way it changed uh, the culture of the country. Uh, but 50 years ago, that movement and all the people involved in it, um, Dr. King certainly as a spokesperson, but but also you know just hundreds and hundreds of people who uh, were deeply committed to it and had given their life to it for years, decided that what was needed was what they called a poor people's campaign, um, a campaign that would bring together uh, poor black folks of the South who they had been working with because they had been excluded from the political system, uh, but bring those folks together with people who had been economically marginalized, poor white people in Appalachia, uh, Chicano workers on the West Coast, um, uh, Native American people, you know, whose lands had been stolen from them and uh, who had been um, marginalized from uh, mainstream American society um, uh, for centuries. Um, uh, all, all of those folks uh, came together in, in this vision of having a, a fusion coalition that would go to Washington, D.C., and, uh, and demand that the political system uh, grapple seriously with, um, with the economic disparity that exists in, in the United States of America. And 50 years later, 
uh, we're in a situation where uh, certainly some things have improved in the country, but a lot of things um, are just as bad or have gotten worse. Mm. And um, we we uh, did an audit of America looking at uh, five categories, systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, um, the war economy, and uh, what we call the distorted moral narrative, the way that uh, that faith gets used to uh, prop up injustice. Um, mm. so, so, something that's, uh, 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 I think, more and more palpably present in uh, you know in our uh, common life when, for example, the Attorney General is willing to give a Bible study to justify the separation of children uh, from their families at the border. But at any rate, um, not his best moment. Here, not his best moment. Yeah, the, the, no. Um, uh, even Brother Russell Moore um, from the Southern Baptist Convention that I grew up in was on TV the other night saying, uh, you know, sometimes um, sometimes we just didn't pay close enough attention in Sunday school and we need, to, <laughs> yeah. we, we need, we need a little refresher. Yeah. Uh, but, but, yep. but, you know, it, it's, actually, it's actually not uh, that kind of simple uh, slip-up. It's, it's um, I think it's a much deeper problem. Mm. Uh, it's... it's um, it's what I've been trying to describe as uh, as a slaveholder religion, and um, uh, and and in so many ways, this campaign is uh, is is trying to point out how that misuse of faith has harmed people and harmed people through policies that have um, pretended to be um, pro democracy, have pretended to even be Christian. Uh, and yet, uh, in very real and even measurable ways, have um, have, have created um, uh, increasing inequality and increasing uh, injustice for um, uh, poor black and brown communities. So, uh, so that so that campaign was really started by those folks fifty years ago. There are people all over the country that have taken it up again today, uh, not just to kind of commemorate it, but to really relaunch it to. Uh, to say uh, we have to take up that baton and, and go the next mile of the way, and so uh, that's a campaign that's been happening in in forty states and in the District of Columbia uh, since Mother's Day, and these forty days of direct action have really been a way of of uh, of launching uh, these moral fusion coalitions that are state based and that are going to continue to build power among poor people, build connections across issues, and. Um, and uh, we hope and pray make a real difference in our uh, uh, electoral politics, but also in the policy vision of whoever gets elected uh, over the next several cycles. Man, uh, w- before we dive into your book, uh, and really start asking you some questions. Cause we really want people to read this book. We uh, agree with many of our friends who've endorsed it and been talking about it on the uh, on the interwebs, uh, including uh, the good father Richard Rohr and uh, former guest Drew Hart and. Uh, we were talking with our other friend, Caitlin Curtis, recently, and she was just like, man, you guys got to get Jonathan on. We're like, we know we're going to. We're trying, <laughs> trying to plan. Uh, it's just there's so much well, to you talk, talk about. You talk to a lot of people. Those are, those are all great folks. I'm oh, glad. yeah, man. We're, I'm we're, glad you've been, talking, you've been talking to my friends. <laughs> yeah, good, man. It's good. We're all in, we're all in good company, friends of friends. Um, but there's, there's a term that you use to define yourself, um, and I think it's going to probably lay some good track when we start talking about the book. Talk about uh, what you mean when you're talking about moral fusion politics a little bit. Give us a little little definition of that or explain that for us a little bit. 
Yeah, so first moral, uh, almost everything in our public life gets framed as left versus right, liberal versus conservative, or increasingly uh, uh, globalist versus nationalist. Um, these kind of uh, binary ways of of saying that you know you have to pick sides. Uh, that you know the, these these the, these two sides have you know different ways of uh, uh, they're they're very ideological divisions, right? Different ways of thinking about it, and and you know the kind of um, the kind of ideal world is that you know these these two ideological differences kind of hash it out and find some middle ground, and and, and we assume that that's the the best way forward. Um, when, as a matter of fact, I think. Um, in some deep and profound ways, um, uh, both sides, if you if you frame it in terms of sides, uh, have been willing to go along with uh, some extreme injustices in this country from the very beginning. Mm. Um, I mean, we we talk about you know the uh, just the establishment of the country in a uh, doctrine of discovery that Ugh. used religious justification to steal land and kill people. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that, that's something that um, if you you know if again if we're going to talk about it in terms of sides neither side ever repented of that in any significant way. Mm. Um, uh, um, you, you know one of the ironies right now is that, that the Republican Party was established as an anti-slavery policy uh, anti-slavery uh, uh, um, party in the mid 19th century uh, and yet um, uh, in so many ways uh, especially since the um, uh, late 1960s, it's it's the party that uh, in this country has been willing to uh, to use the divide and conquer tactics of uh, uh, of, of the uh, racist uh, past in the South to manipulate the whole country. Mm. And um, and so in so many ways, for me, this is not about left or right, but it's about uh, going a little deeper and asking, you know, what what kind of fundamental moral values do uh, people in this country have as citizens? Uh, what kind of moral values should we have as you know people who claim to follow Jesus and who want the the Bible to be some guide for our life? You know, not just when we're at home with our families, but our our life in public. Um, so this is a movement that's trying to be moral in the sense that it's it's trying to ask the question: What sort of uh, policies in our public life uh, would be true? To our to the moral claims of our faith traditions and our constitutional traditions, and then it's a fusion movement uh, in that it's uh, trying to bring together people who've been pitted against one another. Mm. So after the after the Civil War, when uh, black folks were first um, included in the political system in the South, uh, every one of them was a Republican because the Republican Party had been the anti-slavery party. Uh, But the Democratic Party had such control in the South at that time that there was no possibility of of a Republican Party uh, having a ruling majority. And so those black Republicans reached out to uh, others, uh, sort of other uh, potential allies. Um, There was a populist movement at the time connected with some of those folks, um, connected with, I guess, people we would call independents today, and uh, they formed what they called a fusion party. And fusion parties controlled the South during Reconstruction. Um, they were black and white folks working together um, to try to do things like 
have public education that would serve everyone, uh, have um, uh, guaranteed living wages. Uh, it, because of the uh, Freedmen's Bureau and its program of, uh, of having um, uh, health care uh, hospitals for poor people in the South, uh, they were, it was a movement that was trying to, to, to talk about what does it mean for everybody to have health care in the way that you could imagine health care in the late 19th century. So, so um, uh, this fusion movement is this notion that uh, it basically everybody does better when everybody does better. And yet, uh, so often, the people who are marginalized by uh, our society get pitted against one another. Um, and so calling together uh, p- people who have been divided by race, who've been divided by uh, you know, regional and sectional differences, uh, have been re- divided by religion in some cases, uh, coming together in a fusion coalition uh, that says we're going to stand together on some of these moral values that we all hold in common. That's moral fusion politics. And and that's uh, something that I learned from Reverend Barber because he had learned it from his daddy who had learned it from, you know, people before him in North Carolina history. It's a kind of it's a kind of wisdom that the freedom movement has passed down that I think has been largely ignored in our mainstream life in the country and in our education system. I mean, I I learned very little about that in uh, in school. And, you know, I had good history classes, hmm. but it, it just wasn't it wasn't the history that was written down and um and passed down by the ruling elites. It it, it was the history that uh, that people always remembered, who had uh, who had hoped that it could transform the structures of our society. It really is a reconstruction history. And I think um, what I learned from Reverend Barber is that the uh, essential work of democracy in America is always reconstruction, because you can't you can't uh, you can't practice repentance in public life. Uh, when a country was founded on this much sin, original sin, uh, without uh, committing yourself to reconstructing the structures that perpetuate that sin. Wanted to see the light Thought I could find the fight in me to get me through my day Oh, the ocean is bright. So one of the things I think you do a really, really uh, great job uh, in the book is really breaking down uh, racism, specifically how racism uh, kind of crops up and appears uh, today. And uh, mm. uh, one of the things, that's one of the things that uh, we, we talked to Dr. Drew Hart about um, when we interviewed him about a year ago is just the fact that uh, a lot of folks just aren't even aware of their own racial uh, biases. And you have this really great part in your book where you talk about the fact that you took this uh, uh, racial bias test. And I remember taking the exact same test and just being shocked and kind of appalled at myself. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I consider myself to be pretty, you know, pretty cultured and, and inclusive and, and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, uh, one of the things that you talk about in your book and, and, doc, and Dr. Uh, Hart talked about as well is the fact yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, racism is not, uh, it's, it's not as... Um, obvious and in your face as maybe it once was in the sixties, we're not necessarily burning crosses in your front yard anymore, but, but maybe you, you, you know, cross the street when you see an African American uh, individual walking on the other side without even thinking about it. So I I wonder if you could talk about the, you know, what you call waking up to, uh, uh, to racial blindness. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, God bless 
you know, Brother Drew Hart and, and, and others like him who have ministered to uh, people who think they're white uh, in black skin. <laughs> because, uh, because, frankly, um, uh, this blindness that I'm trying to name is, um, is something that uh, I'm just painfully aware that, uh, that people like me can't see. Mm. We, we, um, blind people have a hard time finding our own way out of our blindness. Um, you know, I, I often think about that story of uh, the Apostle Paul uh, when he was, of course, called Saul on the way to Damascus, you know, papers in hand to persecute the church down there because uh, he was a person of privilege in his society. He was a Roman citizen. He had combined his privilege with piety. Uh, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said, uh, by his own account, you know, surpassing everyone else in his righteousness, and yet his privilege plus his piety uh, equaled uh, a commitment to persecution. He's going to persecute uh, the Christian movement, and um, uh, Jesus knocks him off his horse, and he's blind. And um, the gift of that moment is that for the first time he realizes his blindness, right? I, mean, I think that's what that story is about to me. He, all of a sudden, he's knocked off his horse, uh, and he can, he can see that he can't see, oh. um, or that he's been seeing everything wrongly. And the, the uh, fascinating thing about that story is Jesus himself is speaking to him, and Jesus tells him, look, you got to go put your hand in the hand of a brother named Ananias. You don't know him, but he's one of these people, you know, check your papers. He's on the list. Like you, He's one of these people you were going to round up, one of these people that, you know, you thought was the enemy, and uh, he's the person who's going to have to uh, help you learn to see. And um, I think, you know, uh, if we want to be real biblical about it, that's about as uh, honest a story as we can find uh, in the Bible of what it means for uh, a white person like myself, you know, somebody who 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 is immersed in the... Um, uh, in the world of whiteness, right, the world that whiteness created, uh, in, in a way that um, that I see through that lens, and yet, um, you know, have been on this journey of learning that whiteness blinds me to what's really happening in so many people's lives, mm. and, uh, and and learning that has meant learning to listen to people who are impacted by the lie, right? Um, like I was, I was just talking to a brother today. I mean, I, when I talk to white folks about this racial blindness uh, these days, a lot of the conversations are about immigration. And, you know, pe people are at pains to say, you know, I'm not trying to be racist. This, you know, this isn't about racism. This is about, uh, you know, uh, respecting law, or this is about, you know, not wanting our culture to fall apart, or, I mean, there's all kinds of ways of narrating. Um, but what, what, what I was trying to help listen to the mother whose children have been taken from her arms, unless you listen to the cries of the children, you, you can't even imagine what the uh, sort of, uh, you know, ideology that you're playing out to justify it actually means for real people. That's, that's racial blindness, uh, from, from from my perspective, and 
and uh, and I think you know having a story like this is uh, is important because it helps us see that uh, our faith, you know, if it's uh, if it's whitewashed in the whiteness, our faith can just perpetuate the blindness. Mm. You know, nobody was more pious than Paul, but he was persecuting Jesus. You know. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus says to him. That's some that's some greeting to get when you meet Jesus face to face. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, man. That's that's not well done, my good and faithful servant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, he still had some work to do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He still had some work to do. Um, so your book's called Reconstructing the Gospel. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen our logo, but you know, we're we're all about reconstruction here, even though our our name is the deconstructionist. We put the D in brackets, we're trying to focus on the construction because it's, it's all about this stuff. But, but reading through your book, I, I realized, um, cause you know, I'm a little too thick at first that using that word reconstruction really harkens back to a lot of things and, uh, bringing the gospel into this conversation is something that I really want you to kind of talk about. So when you talk about, uh, reconstructing using that word intentionally, the mm-hmm. gospel what are you What are you talking about here? If you could give us a, we want people to read the book, but uh, we want to get yeah. to the, the heart of the issue too. So, yeah, how does the how does the gospel need reconstructing, and and what gospel um, are you talking about? Because obviously, you know, there's different people that use the diff- gospel for different reasons, and I I'll just let you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, early in the book, I tell the story of Easter Sunday at the Colfax Courthouse in Louisiana. Uh, in some ways, I think it captures how um, how twisted our understanding of the gospel can become with mm-hmm. racial blindness. So during during the period of American history that we call Reconstruction, there were, of course, I think as most people know, there were white Southerners who were um, indignant that these, you know, Northern Union soldiers had come down, you know, with their carpetbagger friends, as they said, and uh, had... had um, Uh, insulted and stomped on their way of life. They were determined to overthrow Reconstruction from the very beginning, and they thought their God was with them in that crusade. And so on Easter Sunday morning, after, you know, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, uh, a band of white men went out to the Colfax courthouse, and uh, they took a cannon out of the uh, arsenal there, and they shot up the courthouse and burned it down and killed everybody that ran out. Um, who were trying to defend the democratically elected um, um, uh, local council members um, who had been elected, of course, by black folks who were able to vote at the time. Now, just the fact that that happened on Easter Sunday oh. and, that the peop- and that the people who were doing that were celebrating it as, in their language, a redemption, as, uh, as, as God uh, returning their land to them, um, is, I think, a... Uh, a very visceral uh, image and uh, um, scene to understand how, um, in so many ways, uh, the gospel uh, can be turned against its very purpose. Uh, I mean, you can draw a line from that time to, uh, you know, the folks who uh, lynched black men uh, on the town square right outside their churches on Saturday nights, uh, all up until the 1940s in the South, and would then, uh, you know, get dressed and go uh, to Sunday church with their families the next morning and even uh, stand outside and take pictures with the uh, 
body hanging in the tree. Um, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, um, perversion of the gospel to justify uh, the order that we think is godly uh, runs all the way up until the present, uh, which is why I was saying earlier, Brother Jeff Sessions, you know, using Romans 13 to justify the separation of families at the border is to me just, you know, uh, the latest chapter in this long story of slaveholder religion. Um, so that's so that's one gospel. That's the gospel that uh, Frederick Douglass called in the mid nineteenth century uh, the Christianity of the slaveholder. He said there's an essential difference between the Christianity of the slaveholder and the Christianity of Christ. And he said between the two, I see the the widest possible difference. Um, so if we're going to especially for those of us who have inherited, you know, slaveholder religion with our blinders on, not even seeing, you know, the ways that, um, that we were perpetuating a story that uh, uses the gospel to deny the gospel's purpose, then uh, I think reconstructing the gospel is about um, taking seriously how we've misread the Bible and how we need to learn it anew, and uh, that that necessarily means learning to read it with people that we haven't been with and uh, learning stories that we haven't known. So, uh, so that's what I mean when I talk about reconstructing the gospel. Mm. Uh, what, one of the things I'd really love to hear you talk about, because um, you, you mentioned this in your book, when you're, when you're talking specifically about racism, you're talking about, you say that it's not necessarily about hate, but about power. And mm. the, the, the term power, it seems to me that's the thing that kind of ties the entire book together, you know, uh, between religion mm. and politics. I would love for, uh, for you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think this is um, this is why you know uh, white folks don't like to think of ourselves as racist, um, and we will uh, regularly, especially Christian white folks, will regularly condemn uh, what we think is racism. You know, um, uh, Charlottesville last year. You know, when the Klan and the Nazis were were uh, trying to unite the right. And we're even willing to run down somebody in the street. Uh, uh, you you'll find broad condemnation of that. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's even um, it's even hard for most people to swallow that you know the current president of the United States can't can't just speak out and condemn something like that. Uh, that kind of explicit racism is simply not politically correct. But um, when I say that uh, racism has never been about hate, it's always been about control, um, I, part of what I'm saying is that, um, is that the, the, kind of, uh, the kind of sort of obvious disdain for other people uh, and need to kind of crush them and brutalize them in public has always been a, uh, a minority uh, movement among white supremacy, and it's one that's been looked down on by those in power because it's just messy. It just kind of makes people cringe. Uh, so, you know, even, even during slavery, uh, uh, you know, people cringed a little bit when uh, folks brutalized slaves uh, because what they wanted was for black bodies to serve the economy, not to have to deal with the, you know, gruesome reality of, um, of, of someone having to beat these enslaved people in order to get them to serve their economic interests. So, so I think uh, um, part of uh, recognizing the structure of racism 
is seeing that it's always been about serving a certain kind of control. And as long as white people have been in control, they've been uh, very happy to celebrate, for example, unity. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's, there's calls for unity these days from uh, those who are in political power. And those calls always remind me of the redemption movement that uh, just after it had uh, both violently and uh, through voter suppression overthrown Reconstruction in the South. Mm. Uh, in, in 1877, uh, the number one uh, call uh, from pulpits across the South was for unity. Let's, let us dwell together. And white folks always thought that they had black folks' best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't some sort of hatred for uh, black people that drove them. It was this sense that they were right and they knew better. And if they were in control, things would, things would, uh, would be all right. Mm. It reminds me of that part in, in your book when you're in the church. I think it was the same chapter on Christmas. And you, you asked, like, you know, were the, were the slaveholders and the slaves taking communion together? Or somebody asked that. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, didn't they, didn't they ever, like, realize, like, just how screwed up that is? Like, didn't, everybody, didn't anybody ever take something away from that and go, you know, I think we might be off here. Yeah. And, and no, because they could feel like they were unified there. They could use it to continue to endorse what they wanted. Look, look, he's my brother. It's my yeah, family. I, right, 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 right. I think that's something that had to be learned. Um, as I read through, as I read through the, um, the churches grappling with, um, the institution of slavery, uh, that, you know, there was a, there was serious pushback um, in the early stages of uh, most Christian movements, most of what we call denominations uh, in the United States. That, you know, there were people who honestly grappled with this. You know, in in uh, uh, conventions and you know Episcopal gatherings and such. And uh, and it it took real work to le- to learn to read the Bible to justify slavery. That that's why I do. I think it needs a name like calling it slaveholder religion is a way of saying like like people paid a lot of money uh, to scholars and to preachers who wrote pamphlets and sermons that um, that explained to, to people just just why this was okay and um, and as they did they uh, they won the argument uh, at least in terms of um, of the um, you know uh, denominations and their positions. Uh, and some, you know, some denominations uh, that even had condemned slavery early on uh, went back and said, "Well, no, it's 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 okay," and uh, and accepted these arguments. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think at a visceral level, you're right. Uh, there must have been for everyone who had a conscience uh, some sort of grappling that happened at that communion rail or at the altar or whatever your tradition might be. Yeah. One of the things that I'd love to hear you speak on a little bit that just runs all throughout your book, I mean, there's several quotes that I could pull from uh, to talk about this. Um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast find themselves deconstructing um, a version of the gospel that's focused on saving souls from going to hell to burn forever. Um, yeah. For anybody that doesn't use the kind of same doctrinal statements or language you know, that, that they might. In addition to that, we find most or at least a large part of the people that listen to a show like this or others like it 
are also deconstructing what they see as like, you know, in, in kind of crude language, like just a white nationalistic version of Christianity. Yeah. And, and you kind of tie those together historically and presently. And I was wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about how those two ideas historically and, and currently relate to one another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you know, this is my inheritance. So uh, in a lot of ways, I've, I've just been grappling with everything that was passed on to me. Mm. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. And, um, you know, what, what I knew growing up in the Southern Baptist Church is that we were, we were committed to missions because we were committed to sharing the gospel with the whole world. Um, and what that meant in the language of uh, the International Mission Board uh, of the Southern Baptist Church was, uh, was planting churches, uh, because through churches, souls were saved. And that was the true mission of the church. You know, anything like, uh, you know, building wells or making sure that people had food to eat was kind of secondary at best. And uh, a lot of people talked about it as a distraction from the true work of, of ministering to people's souls. Well, uh, when I started digging into the Southern Baptist Church's uh, uh, justifications of slavery over and against the abolitionists in the mid-19th century, uh, one of the things I realized is that, uh, you know, as the abolition movement grew uh, and as there was a strong uh, public moral case being made against slavery, uh, people had to, in some ways, uh, up their argument, you know? You know how when you're losing losing an argument, you have to come up with, you know, something better to say? Oh, and so, gosh, yeah. you know, for some time, people had been... Yeah, people had been making these kind of extended arguments about the Old Testament and how, you know, there was there was a hierarchy of humanity in the creation story, or it came from, you know, the curse of Ham. And there were all these readings that kind of read racism into the Bible uh, and, and then used that to say that, you know, slavery is biblical in the Old Testament and Paul doesn't condemn it in the New Testament, so it must still be okay in the 19th century. And that was kind of the line. But, um, but this guy, Thornton Stringfellow and others, but Thornton Stringfellow was the Baptist in Virginia— who wrote this up in a, in a book that became pretty popular um, among the slaveholders. And he makes this, uh, he makes this kind of uh, intricate, but also I think to almost anybody who would read it today, obscene argument that, um, that it was actually a good, not just for the uh, uh, plantation owners of the South, but a good for the enslaved people uh, that they uh, were brought into slavery because if they had died in pagan Africa and gone to hell, they would have burned in eternal torment, but since they got to come here uh, and hear the good news of the gospel, you know, from these good white Christians who uh, would, would, you know, have their preachers preach revival meetings or whatever where, where the slaves could hear it. Uh, um, uh, so because of this, their souls might go to heaven, and he sort of waxes eloquent at the end of his argument and says, and, and maybe God will even raise up a missionary from among them that will go back to you know, the great expanses of Ethiopia and share the good news <laughs> as, so, as so if, white, as so if Christianity people, hadn't been in, as if Christianity had been in Africa for 2000 years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so white people are saving the world, man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I, and I had this realization that, Oh my, like our uh, commitment to, um, uh, you know, missions and to, you know, sending missionaries uh, into the uttermost parts of the world and all the kind of stories of sacrifice and, you know, real Christianity that I'd heard growing up, we're really deeply rooted in a very racist notion of uh, of even what 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 uh, evangelism means. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's one example. But I think digging into that history for me has um, has helped me to see that uh, yeah, some of the some of the real 
issues that a lot of people are grappling with as they come to terms with the with the faith that they inherited uh, are really are really not so much uh, strictly theological issues as they are uh, distortions of theology that come out of a very specific historical context. I come across I come across a lot of people who have these deconstructionist kind of questions these days who say you know things like for example um, you know I love Jesus in the Gospels but you know I have a hard time with this guy Paul uh, and like I get what they're saying and I, I I think I understand it but I think a lot of times like these kind of efforts to sort of name what it is that they're drawn to and what they aren't in the story uh, is really not so much about uh, discontinuity in the story, although, you know, I'm perfectly happy to talk about the, you know, wild diversity there is within the scripture. I don't think it all lines up to some kind of systematic understanding, but <laughs> I, I don't think it's so much about uh, the fact that the story can't hold together as it is that uh, there's some real messed up ways of using the story that we've inherited and, uh, and have it even named. Yeah. I mean, people don't necessarily have, this is why we love we still love the word deconstruction because really John and I are just inviting people to stop letting people just rep the Bible for them. Like you, you probably don't have a problem with Paul because you've probably never encountered Paul outside of whatever, who repped Paul for you to you, you know, who, who delivered Paul to you? Cause that's probably what you're deconstructing. You probably haven't actually sat down with mm. him and done some work and read some varying perspectives on, well, maybe there's some other ways of looking at this. Yeah. You know, you need to fire yeah. your, your rep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need to fire your sales rep on Paul and maybe in, actually yeah. engage Paul. Huh? And you know, that's what Jesus does. Uh, it, what you're describing as deconstruction is the Sermon on the Mount. You know? Totally. You've heard, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Right. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's another way of reading this tradition. Let me, let me uh, I, I, I'm not trying to abolish anything. But let me read it differently. Yeah, you know, maybe it could be translated, uh, wake up, that's wake Jesus up, people. Ministry. Wake up, people. <laughs> this is what it's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. One of the things I, w- I would love to get your take on, uh, and I think you do such a great job of addressing it in this book, is this idea that uh, the, the separation of, of church and um, and and politics, which is is pretty ridiculous if if you look at our current political structure. Uh, you know, seeing as uh, in particular white evangelical Christianity seems so deeply ingrained in one of our political parties. Yep. Uh, you know, yeah. there's there's no mistake. There's no. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look at the uh, the statistics from the last election, I think it was something around eighty one percent of white evangelical Christians uh, voted for for Donald Trump. Uh, so. And yet, you know, and, 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 they're, and they're voting on and particular issues, too. So if you break it down even further, you know, a lot of folks are, are, are voting based off of uh, singular issues, uh, you know, like abortion or like gay marriage or, or, or things of that nature. Um, and, and so it, it kind of comes back to that whole power thing where uh, there's a party that is, that is essentially uh, swinging votes uh, by way of religion. And I would just love to get your, your, your take on that. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, so one response to this reality is to say that, you know, we should keep religion and politics separate. Uh, you know, the Southern Baptist Church just met down in Texas, um, and uh, a whole lot of, of folks, um, including the fellow that they, you know, elected to be the new president, kind of talk this way, you know, that we've over-politicized uh, our faith, and, you know, we need to uh, keep the two distinct, um, which to me, uh, you know, especially as we think about kind of interrogating the lie of whiteness, uh, that feels rather naive uh, um, to think that any kind of faith, if faith is, you know, um, uh, trusting, um, you know, what God says about how you ought to live your whole life, uh, that, that you could separate that from the decision you make about how you live your life in public. Um, that, that, that to me seems uh, uh, wrongheaded. And in so many ways, I think slaveholder religion really has two legacies in the 20th century. On the one hand, it has this um, uh, very political, a very partisan uh, angle of, you know, using party politics uh, to uh, kind of baptize a, a kind of extremism and, uh, and call it uh, redemption. And so, you know, the folks in the 1870s were trying to take their country back. The folks in the in 2016 election were trying to take their country back. There's lots of parallels between those two things. And, mm. and I think that is a legacy of slaveholder, slaveholder religion. But the other legacy of slaveholder religion is um, uh, this uh, overwhelming way that when white people are in power, uh, they can pretend that, um, that faith is really about, you know, um, uh, what you do on Sunday morning and how you feel in your heart and maybe, you know, um, how you order your home home or something, but it doesn't have to do with, uh, with public life. And, um, uh, I think that's the kind of compromise of the mid 20th century that someone like, you know, Billy Graham strikes where, you know, he's, I mean, Billy Graham is, uh, is pushing back against the fundamentalists uh, of his day, you know, who, who, who would have been, um, you know, much more um, drawn to the kind of highly politicized um, uh, sort of radicalism that we see today. Uh, he, he gets caught up in a little bit, but then, you know, he ultimately doesn't associate himself with the religious right and the moral majority as it emerged in the 1980s. Uh, and yet, um, in so many ways, uh, if you look at the way, you know, he's not willing to uh, point out the... Uh, the very prophetic way that the gospel speaks to, um, for example, the need to challenge injustice uh, or to you know support things like the civil rights movement and movements for economic justice, uh, uh, that depoliticization of the faith is also a kind of legacy of whiteness and of slaveholder religion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so to I think to uh, grapple honestly with how faith is political. Is to um, is to take seriously uh, what the Bible's vision for justice is, and to take seriously how uh, Jesus and the prophets pursue that vision. You know, it's not from a position of power, but it's from a position of really embracing the weak and the marginalized and those who've been pushed aside, uh, uh, standing in those spaces and saying, "God hears your cries." And as a matter of fact, God is intervening, and God can speak through. You to the powers in order to um, uh, challenge the way that power is used to um, to benefit few 
and to uh, suppress the many. Man, that leads right into a question that I wanted to ask you. So much of what you've said um, speaks to an issue that we talk about quite a bit on the show, especially if we've got the, the good father Richard Rohr on, but it seems to come up a lot. Uh, and it's this issue of uh, dualism, right? So, you know, yeah. like, you, like you were talking about early in the episode, you know, we've got this kind of false dichotomy. We've got, uh, all, allegedly, we just have the right and the left, and allegedly, we just have the liberals and the conservatives, and allegedly, we just have black and white, or, you know, what? and it's just like, it's completely untrue. And, and that assumption in and of itself that we allow to keep happening in our consciousness is actually just capitulating to the power structures that are currently in place. And one of the things that you talk about in your book that I love that, that deals with this dualism is how the slaveholder religion did a really good job of separating soul and body. And I yeah. think that that is huge. And if you could talk about that and the importance of, of why that everything that I was kind of given growing up is like, uh, you know, the body, uh, I guess, you know, let's be modest and, you know, let's kind of cover it up and, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of just play that down. It's, it's almost a little bit evil. It's the flesh even, you know, mm-hmm. but what, you mm-hmm. know, you really just need to take care of your soul. So have your quiet time, memorize a lot of Bible verses, you know, get people out of hell and, you know, let's, yeah. that's the, the pinnacle. That's, you know, that's the, the summit of religion and this dualism you talk about is a, is a big problem and plays into slaveholder religion. If you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you're, you're already talking about it, my brother. I mean, I think you've, you've got your, um, sights on, uh, a deep impoverishment of the gospel in the, um, in the highly racialized, uh, version of it that we, Inherited. I don't think white people often think of our um, of our gospel as racialized. You know, you know. Uh, you think about it in in the uh, academic sphere. You know, these days you go to a seminary, you can you can take classes in black theology and you know Latinx theology. And uh, sometimes you know, I just look around and say, like, well. Why doesn't everybody else admit that they're teaching white theology? Like, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, seriously. You know, <laughs> why is why is the norm the white theology? And um, well, I, I think that's just a way of saying that um, that you know we have inherited a kind of faith that um, that was willing to compromise itself to a society that was dominated by white supremacy. Um, in order to get along. And maybe I think ultimately because we didn't have enough faith. We didn't think it was possible to survive without it. Um, You know, that's the incredible witness of uh, the Hebrew Bible, that God's people somehow trust God when they're not in power. Mm. I think that's maybe the most revolutionary thing about the story that we inherited. I don't see that in most other stories of the ancient world, you know? No, that's people, so good. People knew, their, people knew their God was great because their God had given them the victory. And if their God didn't give them the victory, then they just assumed that, you know, whoever beat them's God was great. And the wild thing about, you know, the Babylonian exile, which is where the scholars tell us most of the um, Hebrew Bible was written down, is that here people who were living under the rule of 
another people and another story about who God is who say, you know, we're here because we weren't faithful to our God. <laughs> and our God's going to open up a way for us to go through the wilderness and go back to, like, our God is still in control. Like, that's the craziest idea in the world. That is so crazy. Um, and, and, like, that's what faith means. Uh, and part of, the, uh, part of the reason that white folks in America uh, have so little understanding of faith is that uh, we haven't been able to trust our God if we weren't in control. Uh, which is why we have to, uh, in the American story, we have to look to the uh, uh, brush arbors and the margins of the plantation to reconstruct and relearn the gospel, because that's where people who were not in control heard the story of Jesus, heard the story about how that God had brought you know Israel out of Egypt before they raised that Jesus from the dead, and uh, if God can do that, then my Lord, maybe he'll even, you know, if God delivered Daniel, maybe he'll even deliver me. Maybe when we hear, you know, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, maybe when we hear swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry home, maybe we can have, even have the faith to, uh, to run off into the woods and, uh, you know, grab Harriet Tubman by the hand. They called her Moses and never looked back, uh, uh, just, just believing that this story was going to get us to freedom. So that is the experience of faith that I'm trying to lean into, you know, the people who are living down there in the borderlands, uh, who watched this country take their land from Mexico right after Mexico uh, voted to abolish slavery in the 1840s. Uh, they took that land because they wanted to be able to keep slaves on that land. And now 150 years later, uh, they've militarized this border and they've said, you know, even though your family's been on both sides of this line for generations. You can't see them over there anymore. And uh, I was down there last fall with, uh, you know, Sister Maria, who walked us out into the Rio Grande uh, for a reunion in the middle of the river, uh, just so she could see uh, a couple of her sons that she hadn't seen in 16 years. And, you know, I looked at them living there in that reality, you know, as, uh, as members of the Catholic Church. Uh, where she took us the next day to her parish and, and you know talked about her faith and I and I realized my God this is what faith means uh, this is you know to, to to believe that God God can uh, can can be God and can hold you to hold you together and bring you through in the midst of that that's that's where that's where you learn what faith means I just think white folks have so little faith because we we haven't haven't been able to trust the story when we're not in control yeah. We think the story means we're supposed to be in control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you read it that way, when, when, you, when you read it that way, you might, you might have political power, but you completely miss the power of the story. Right? There's no possibility of knowing what resurrection means, like what it means to actually live into resurrection power if the only thing you can trust is worldly power. Mm. And that's right there in the Apostle Paul. I was just preaching it on Sunday because that's, that's his letter to, to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, because he says, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, in this, we're in this struggle. You know, we, we, we face death every day, and it's at every hand, and we don't know if we're going to make it. But he says uh, we hold on because we know that... Uh, that the, the power of resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. So we can keep going 
even when it looks like we're being crushed. Uh, Never get to know what that means. Never get to know what that means until you, until you're willing to step away from the neat and tidy world of white control and into those spaces where people who are struggling for their lives against the power of whiteness uh, are are able to show us what faith really means. Jeez, man. That's why I'm part of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Because these folks, these folks embody the gospel to me, you know? They flesh out for me what this Bible that I've been reading all my life really means. And, uh, and you know, again, like I said, the people who raised me made me memorize the thing. You know, I've got all these scriptures in my head, so I don't even have to have the Bible open. I'm just out here watching people, you know, and I, and I, and I hear the verses coming back to me. Uh, you know, there's Paul saying, I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And this life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, it's one thing to, it's one thing to memorize that. I'm so glad I did memorize it, but, uh, but it tickles me uh, and, and, and really stirs up my soul to see people who are fleshing that out in the struggle to love their family and to stand with their community and to struggle for justice in the world. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. Man, um, before we let you go, this, is, this has been so enjoyable for Adam and I just to get a chance to talk with you uh, about this, this incredible book. Where, where can people, first and foremost, where can they find this book? And uh, where's the best place to go uh, for them to keep up on, on your work and what you're up to? Well, the book is called Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. And uh, I hope you'll find it at your local bookstore. Um, we had a great discussion about the book at uh, the local bookstore here in Durham last night. Uh, I, uh, I think bookstores are, are important public spaces. And uh, so support your local bookstore. Um, you can uh, learn more about me and the kind of stuff I write at a author website that I have that's just my name, jonathanwilsonhartgrove.com. So good, man. Hey, last thing, um, all this talk, what do you want people to go do? What can people, what can people start to look at and do other than read your book? Well, you know, when I was in, um, I was uh, living in Philadelphia when 9-11 happened and uh, George W. Bush was president and um, a lot of white evangelicals thought that, you know, uh, God had ordained him to be president and so what he said was what we should do. And so it was uh, uh, increasingly clear that we were going to go to war. And uh, I remember uh, feeling uncomfortable with that, feeling like, um, uh, you know, this sort of knee-jerk reaction to attack somebody because we had been attacked. This wasn't uh, what Jesus meant when he said, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn the other one to them. And so, uh, so I was trying to, I was young and I was trying to learn from people who had uh, been walking this way of Jesus and who practiced Christian nonviolence. And so I heard that a guy named Father Dan Berrigan was coming to town and Father Dan had been part of the Christian peace movement um, since he and his brother uh, uh, took some draft cards out of a out of a selective service office in Catonsville, Maryland, and uh, 
during the Vietnam War and poured an napalm on them and burned them in the parking lot. They knelt down and prayed the Lord's Prayer in the parking lot, and some people were there and took pictures, and it was on the cover of Time magazine the next week. But they became these kind of uh, uh, um, leaders of uh, direct action. And so I wanted to sit with Father Dan in that situation. I, I wanted to hear from him, like, what should we do? What should we do? You know, our country's going to go to war again. What should we do? And so I was real eager and with some other young people who were eager to, you know, get a word from him. And, and he showed up, and he had a pocket full of poems he had been writing, and he pulled out his poems. <laughs> he was reading these poems for a few minutes, and uh, I thought, like, when is he going to tell us what to do? And um, uh, finally he paused for a while, and he said, you know, when I was your age, somebody looked at me and said something I've never forgotten. They said, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then he just kind of paused. And uh, I think what he was, you know, Father Dan was a poet, and poets pay attention. And I think what he was trying to say to us was learn to pay attention, uh, mm. learn to stare and to see what's really going on. Uh, of course, we have to do something. There's, uh, there's all kinds of things that have to be done. Um, but I think uh, people who are blind are more likely to do the wrong thing, mm. uh, are, are more likely to do something that's going to screw stuff up <laughs> than, uh, uh, the, than, than to just uh, uh, own that uh, we need to be about deep repentance. And that's going to mean paying attention and it's going to mean being in that place like Paul when he realizes he's blind and taking, taking somebody by the hand uh, who's willing to show you the way. So um, I would say the most important thing to do is to find someone in your community who is, um, who is living the faith out uh, of a place of marginalization, a place of you know, not having power. And uh, learn what faith means from them, and uh, and ask them what they need you to do uh, in order to uh, uh, achieve the things that they need for them and their family to survive. Man, Jonathan, thank you. Thanks for your work. Thanks for paying attention. Hey, thank you. Thanks for leading thank others. You. Deconstruction in- is always. Yeah, always ultimately about reconstruction. So yeah, I'm glad right. to talk about reconstruction with the deconstructionists. <laughs> super cool, man. Super, super cool. Uh, hopefully we cross paths and then we can give you a big hug someday. Hey, if I'm coming through Ohio again, I'll let you know. Please do, Next man. Time. Absolutely. Please do. We got lots of reconstruction to do in Ohio for sure. Heck yeah, yeah man. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, grace and peace to you and uh, ending up, uh, you know, on your tour here and uh, all your book talking and all that kind of stuff and your ministries and just many blessings on you, friend. Thanks for spending some time with us. Bless you all. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Where do you begin? Oh my gosh. I mean, that's one of those ones that could have been a two-parter or a three-parter. Yeah. Easily. Easily. Um, just the fact that, you know, so many people that listen to this podcast find themselves deconstructing, you know, a version of the gospel that's focused on saving people from going to hell forever and realizing that 
you know, a, like kind of a white nationalistic version of their religion has been, you know, eerily handed to them in ways that has maybe um, paved ways of injustice and built structures of uh, supremacy and, and really ugly, ugly things that are very anti-gospel. Yeah. Yeah, the gospel needs some reconstructing. And oh my gosh, we like to deconstruct and re- reconstruct. And it's just so much there. Everybody, you got to follow this guy. Read, not only read the book, read um, the footnotes and, and read some of the stuff that he points you to. Yeah. And dig deeper. I think that's one of the things that I'd really like to say. I think that he does a really good job of giving a high level, like, overview of this stuff and, and kind of leaves it up to you to say, keep having conversations, keep digging, keep, keep asking, and keep uncovering. Um, man, we covered so much in that episode. Yeah, I, I, loved, uh, I loved his bit about um, waking up to racial blindness because it, it made me think back to uh, the, the conversation we had with Drew Hart where he talks about the, the subtle forms of racism and how we, we so arrogantly think, uh, especially in the United States, that we've moved past it. You know, we've moved beyond it. And that, um, you know, like the thing that drives me nuts is when people are, I don't, I don't see color. You know, it's like, and then, and then Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove talks about the fact that um, in his book, he talks about taking that racial bias test um, because your racial tendencies are often are very, very sneaky and subtle. Yeah. I, I took that years ago. I remember I thought, you know, and I was sitting there from the same perspective where I'm like, oh, I'm good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm the least racist person you've ever met, you know? And I sat down and took it and I was like, oh no, I'm so woke. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm so woke. Uh, it's like, no, no, I'm not, you know? And, and I need to, it's something that unfortunately is built into the system. Mm-hmm. And it's something that as a result of that, that we have to continually work towards every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to have to be an active, conscious effort um, to, to to push back against that that tendency. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I think guys like him, guys like Drew Hart, are are just doing absolutely vital work, um, especially considering the, the current climate, you know? Yeah, I think that just in general, um, so much of what we do, and this is in a, in a really important way, uh, part of what I'm about to say, but so much of what we do is built around just... Uh, giving people permission and even encouragement to just pay attention, to not sleepwalk through this thing, this journey. Um, and paying attention is costly because it's going to disrupt your comfort zone. And your comfort zone, I, I always kind of like to say the comfort zone is a, a prison that your ego likes to chill in. Yeah. You know? And paying attention is going to start to notice like, oh, this, this isn't a comfortable bed. This is like a cot. And this, these aren't you know, nice wall. These are prison bars. Like I got to get out. There's some things wrong here when you start to pay attention. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that short little uh, David Foster Wallace um, commencement speech. Uh, it's called This Is Water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like a lot of people have read that. And like it starts off with this anecdote about the old fish that swims past the two younger fish in the morning. And he goes, how's the water this morning, boys? And they go, what's water? <laughs> right. And... uh it's just so funny because paying attention is incredibly costly and to pay attention means to start to notice things that you've just been taking for granted all the time. And if you've been taking for granted, here's where it gets really painful. It also means you're complicit in it because we're all responsible. Yeah. We're all responsible. We are responsible. And so to start to wake up, to start to ask questions, start to have conversations, I've had the benefit of having a very, very 
dear friend, um, allow me to come to him. His name's Ted. He's like my brother from another mother. We work together. And um, he, you know, as an African-American, has had a completely different experience than I have. And I feel like an idiot, but I always come to him like, hey, dude, I got to ask you a question. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this or like, you know what, you got to like explain this to me or like help me understand this. And they have been some of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. And it takes a degree of like, I got to be uncomfortable enough to be like, I don't know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And like paying attention and learning more about like what is actually happening in ways that you just, you can't see it. And, and it probably meant a lot to him to have somebody actually take the time to say, all right, look, like I, I'm trying not to, to be offensive yeah. and, and I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to understand and seek to understand. You know, we, yeah. we say that all the time. Right. So, yeah. And I, I think they have meant something to him. I think uh, we're, we're very good friends. At least I think we are. Let's call him right now. Let's call him right now. <laughs> when you get Ted online, he would, he, would be, he would love it. Oh my gosh. He'd really? Be, he'd be great. Oh, we should. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he listens to this, but uh, love you, Ted. Um, yeah. What else, man? That's, uh, you know, they listen to the episode. We don't have to rehash it all, but yeah. So good. Um, yeah. As usual, big thanks to everybody who's, who's, uh, follows us on Twitter, you know, join the Patreon family, uh, checks out our blog, um, you know, on our website and, and just, uh, supports us in any way they, they can, whether it's just telling a friend about the podcast or leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. That helps tremendously. Um, just thank you to everybody. Um, the band this week, the artist, rather, this week, and I, I'm probably going to butcher this name, but so I'm so sorry in advance, but Kina Granis, I, I want to say that's how we pronounce it, but she's uh, an artist that um, is just tremendous. Like, love her music, um, and she has a really interesting story as well. Um, she... Uh, not to give the whole thing away, but if you go to her website, she had a, a crazy incident where she went over to play music in a foreign country and um, her concert got shut down and she got stuck there for, I oh think, like gosh, four months. You were telling me about this. It's insane. Yeah. So she thought that, hey, I might end up spending the rest of my life in jail just perform. Uh, I think the, the situation was they, they arrested her and the band for performing music without a, like a license or something crazy. And so she has this crazy story where it forced her to, to really uh, take a look at things that were important to her. And so she, yeah, so she has these great, this great uh, um, uh, like blog post on her website where she talks about how every day she would wake up and find one thing to be grateful for. And, mm. and uh, it's just this really moving story. And, 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 and uh, aside from just making uh, brilliant music. So it's awesome, dude. So if you like that, check that out. Um, you know, buy her music, support her, go see her live. And uh, as always, follow our Spotify playlist where we will add one of her tracks and you can follow all the previous artists. Yeah, yeah. Well, happy summer, everybody. Indeed. Be careful out there. Um, Be respectful, be humble. Keep having conversations. Keep deconstructing. For now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, guys. me of summers a family of backyards of you and me if i went back there straight back to the place where i wondered what we could be i'd laugh who'd have thought
See you. 